Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we are talking about the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. On March 3rd, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov threw a wrench in the works of what appeared to be a done deal by asking for an exemption to Western sanctions on Russia because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in order for Moscow to sign off on the JCPOA. Less than two weeks later, the Biden administration seems to have given just enough assurances and following a meeting between the Iranian and Russian foreign ministers this week, the parties seem ready to get back to Vienna and work out the remaining details, the stickiest of which for the United States may be whether the administration delists the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, as a terrorist organization. There are few better to talk about Iran and the Iran nuclear deal than Mark Fitzpatrick, Associate Fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, or IISS. Until 2019, Mark was Executive Director of the IISS Americas office and head of its non-proliferation and nuclear policy program. He is the author or co-author of four books about Iran's nuclear and missile capabilities, and he produced a strategic dossier about nuclear programs in the Middle East. He has lectured throughout the world and is a frequent media commentator, including as a contributor to El Monitor as recently as this week. He joined IISS in October 2005 after a 26-year career at the U.S. State Department, including as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Nonproliferation. My conversation with Mark Fitzpatrick about the Iran nuclear deal begins now. Mark, welcome to On the Middle East. Happy to talk to you, Andrew. Mark, let's talk about the Iran nuclear deal. That's our topic today. And let's start at the beginning. What is the core concept and conceit of the JCPOA? Who are the players and what did each party get in the deal? Right. So if we start at the beginning, we have to realize that this is all about Iran's uh, desire to have a nuclear weapons capability, not necessarily to immediately build nuclear weapons, but to have the uh, future ability to do so. They have a nuclear hedging strategy. And the uh, 2015 Iran nuclear deal, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, sought to uh, postpone the day uh, by which Iran might have the capability to actually produce nuclear weapons. It dramatically rolled back Iran's capabilities, you know, reduced its stockpile of enriched uranium by 98%, took uh, more than half of its centrifuges offline, and uh, made it impossible for Iran to produce the fissile material for a nuclear weapon in less than one year should Iran uh, choose to go down that path. And probably most importantly, it's often overlooked, there were um, more intrusive inspection requirements uh, in the deal, uh, requirements which do not expire under the terms of the deal while the other uh, limits do expire. There were um, 
uh, eight parties in all to the deal. Uh, it was um, the United States and its uh, European allies, that is uh, Britain and France and Germany, uh, plus Russia and China. So those are the P6. And then Iran was a seventh party. And then the European Union was a party in its own right. So hence eight parties. And what did Iran get from this deal? Right. So Iran got um, the lifting of sanctions, not the complete elimination of sanctions, but the uh, uh, the relaxation of sanctions, uh, some immediately, some over a period of time, but it had the uh, impact of uh, allowing Iran to uh, make use of uh, funds, its funds that had been frozen by the United States sanctions, um, upwards of $50 billion worth of frozen accounts it had uh, access to. And Iran was uh, able to sell oil on the international market freely, which it did uh, more than uh, doubling its uh, oil sales. And uh, you know this all was a big boon uh, to the Iranian economy. And of course, what the United States and its negotiating partners got was uh, these limits on Iran's nuclear program and the intrusive inspections. Mark, you may not remember this, but I was at an IISS event. I think you were chairing uh, when the deal became public. It was one of these roundtables and many you were involved in, and I too, when we were colleagues and, and, and after. And I remember looking at the document and of course, always appreciating getting your view on it. And we, we talked about it. This was considered, and tell me if I'm, I'm, I'm wrong, or if you agree, I should say, a major achievement for U.S. diplomacy and for nuclear non-proliferation policy. Oh, I absolutely do agree, Andrew, and I wrote it at the time. I was surprised uh, by how thorough the deal was and how uh, greatly it set back Iran's program. Iran agreed to, to give up uh, so much of its uh, potential nuclear weapons uh, production capability, in addition to um, reducing the stockpile of enriched uranium and uh, the number of centrifuges that could produce more of it. They agreed to um, you know, virtually um, eliminate the possibility that they could produce uh, plutonium, the other path to nuclear weapons. And then the um, inspections that they agreed to were um, remarkable in their, um, in their, in their depth, and, and, it, and it went beyond any uh, any um, non-proliferation agreement that had ever been negotiated. You know, sometimes countries have to accept very intrusive inspections and limits if they've just lost a war, like uh, in the case of Iraq after the, uh, the U.S. Uh, invasion there. But this was uh, an undefeated country accepting very intrusive uh, uh, inspections and limits. Uh, so it was uh, a terrific uh, deal for uh, the cause of non-proliferation, and it was a feather in the cap of, uh, of President Obama and his team who negotiated the deal, uh, and, and along sorry, with the uh, European partners in Russia and China. Our U.S. regional partners were not so happy with the deal, and here I'm thinking of Israel and, and the Gulf states. Uh, tell us a little about their concerns and why they felt their concerns were neglected, and if you think their concerns are justified. Well, they had legitimate concerns uh, in that um, what they worried about and still worry about vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran is not so much its nuclear weapons potential as its other means 
of inflicting uh, harm on them via its missiles, via its um, interference in their domestic politics, via its support for non-state actors in the region. And, and these are you know, very serious uh, concerns of Iran's neighbors. Israel uh, also was concerned about the nuclear program, uh, but, uh, but the Arab Gulf states were less concerned about the nuclear uh, problem. And this deal, uh, you know, famously uh, or infamously, only dealt with the nuclear issue. It, it, uh, it didn't touch missiles. The United States wanted to include missiles at the beginning of the negotiations, but Iran refused because uh, missiles are so central to its uh, sense of deterrence and defense. You know, having back in the Iran-Iraq war when it was attacked uh, uh, by Iraq's uh, missiles and didn't have anything to defend uh, in, uh, in like uh, kind of weapons. And so it developed missiles. So Iran wasn't going to uh, negotiate away its missiles. And uh, the United States decided that uh, the missiles weren't so much a threat if they couldn't carry nuclear weapons. So let's focus on eliminating the possibility to produce nuclear weapons. Uh, and, uh, and that's what they did. But they didn't touch uh, Iran's, uh, the, the deal also didn't touch uh, Iran's regional activity or, or its other problematic behavior. You know, including everything like that um, in an all-inclusive deal would have been really impossible uh, to negotiate. It was difficult enough to get the nuclear deal, which uh, Wendy Sherman, chief uh, deputy negotiator at the time, called a rubric's cube in terms of its complexity. So just one more word about the uh, regional reactions. They, they did not. Um, uh, like uh, the idea of even negotiating with Iran because Iran had been uh, in the penalty box. It had been an international pariah. And this deal gave a legitimacy to Iran's nuclear program and, uh, and, and a kind of a de facto legitimacy to Iran as a, as a party in the region and in the international community. And that may be what most um, Annoyed uh, Iran's neighbors that it uh, it now had to uh, uh, you know be in an environment where this uh, powerful neighbor Iran was deemed a legitimate country. Another party that didn't uh, find the nuclear deal uh, a benefit to U.S. policy was President Donald Trump. And in May 2018, he withdrew the United States from the JCPOA which meant that Iran could no longer export its oil or use financial institutions because of U.S. secondary sanctions and more sanctions were piled on Iran after the withdrawal. And Iran, in response, began to expand its nuclear program outside of the constraints of the JCPOA. Tell us about this period, and more broadly, do you see that Iran's steps from 2018 until now with regards to its nuclear program have limited uh, the ability of a, a renewed JCPOA. We'll get into that in a minute. But do you think those steps have, have undermined the JCPOA as it was written in 2015? Yeah, this is really the, uh, the crucial time period, Andrew. Uh, you know, President Trump put the uh, withdrew from the deal in May 2018. It's important to realize that Iran didn't respond immediately. They waited a year. Uh, they kept uh, uh, their uh, adherence to um, the limits. And, and of course, they had been um, honoring the deal. Uh, Trump pulled out at a time when in Iran had 
been honoring the deal, successive quarterly IAEA uh, reports for, you know, report after report said Iran was meeting its limits. So uh, Iran was in, in complying and then the United States stopped complying, but Iran still complied for another year and then began to, um, to break the limits and increasingly um, in increasingly dangerous uh, ways. And now to the point that um, what had been a one year breakout period of the time it would take them theoretically to produce the fissile material for a nuclear weapon, now they could do in, in a couple of weeks. And that is all because Trump pulled out of the deal. Whenever you read alarming reports about what Iran has done, you know, sometimes they, they forget to mention why Iran did it. It's, it's because uh, Trump pulled out. And so Biden, um, on the, Joe Biden on the campaign trail um, pledged to, uh, to restore America's commitment. Um, it took him, Biden, uh, a while to get his team together, um, but entered into negotiations. And yeah, I think we're now at the point where there will be a deal. And uh, it's, it's difficult uh, returning to the deal of 2015 uh, even though the same limits can be applied. In the meantime, Iran has made so many advances uh, in its uh, nuclear knowledge and capabilities that it's impossible probably to return to that one-year breakout period. One year was uh, uh, you know, an arbitrary timeline, but it had the benefit of being a round number if, well, 12 months. Uh, and you know, it's probably gonna be seven months or nine months or something, and, and there will be a huge political cry about that, but um, compare that to what we are. We always have to compare you know, a deal, not to an ideal, you know, somebody's uh, conception of an ideal deal or, you know, a unicorn deal, but <laughs> compare it um, to the situation otherwise. And we know what the situation is otherwise. It's today's situation where Iran is uh, a screwdriver away from being able to produce fissile material and is not abiding by the inspection requirements. So a deal will um, will put us in a much more peaceful uh, position. When President Biden came in, as you mentioned, he gave priority to getting a team together and to getting the U.S. back into the deal. But it's taken a year of difficult negotiations. As some argued, I think this was your position, and, uh, and, and please correct me if it's not, that it could have been done much faster in the beginning uh, by uh, primarily executive action of just re-entering uh, the deal. Why did the Biden administration, if that's correct, why did the Biden administration pursue the path of negotiations and what has been so difficult about re-entering a deal in which the U.S. was already a party or had been a party? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, 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 did, I, I did say that, uh, you know, it could be done, it could have been done earlier, but I, I was not one of those who argued for Biden taking executive action to restore America's commitment to the deal, um, because there's a problem with that. There's a legal and a political problem uh, with that. Um, under the terms of the, um, ninth, uh, the 2015 uh, INARA, uh, Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, um, it, this president has to certify every 90 days that uh, Iran is complying with the agreement. And if, uh, if Biden were to have restored uh, U.S. commitments, and that is to say to, to, to lift the sanctions, before Iran had... Uh, come back into compliance itself, then uh, making that certification becomes impossible and it becomes a huge uh, political problem uh, and legal problem for the US administration. So, so Biden uh, properly um, sought a negotiation. 
to uh, bring about a um, uh, simultaneous uh, return to the deal, uh, a uh, compliance for compliance return to the deal that both sides would, would again comply. And, and it wasn't so simple because there were sequencing issues that needed to be worked out. There were um, you know, steps of what exactly Iran would have to do to return to the deal, what the United States would have to do. These are not simple. And um, of course, they needed negotiation. Now, Biden was a little slow in getting those negoti negotiations going because he didn't have his team on board. He needed to get you know, confirmations uh, from the Senate, which um, under the previous administration had been very obstreperous. And, uh, and even some members of Biden's own uh, Democratic Party uh, didn't want to just return to the deal as was. They wanted a, a tougher deal. Um, so yeah, Biden was a little slow, but then Iran was very slow. Iran, first of all, they wouldn't even negotiate directly with the United States, and they were they were slow about resuming negotiations themselves. So negotiations didn't really get going until March, April, and then um, you know they were they were being, negotiations were going uh, okay. Uh, you know they, they were being done in a businessman uh, like uh, fashion, uh, going through all these different issues, and by June they were ready to strike a deal. But then the Iran election loomed. And uh, rather than uh, wrap up a deal before the uh, June um, Iran presidential election, the, the then president, um, uh, Hassan Rouhani, uh, said, let's, let's take a break. Uh, we'll resume this after the election. We'll let the new, you know, whoever's elected that can look at this and, uh, and hopefully we can wrap it up soon. Well, the, the new team of, uh, of President Raisi didn't wrap it up soon. They sat on it for five months of, uh, of examining. And yeah, okay, you need some review, but five months, I thought they were stalling. And then when they did resume talks in November, Iran was not serious. They, they came up with a ridiculous uh, demand. So Iran didn't get serious until December, at which point um, there was a text uh, that was being exchanged. It had brackets in it. Brackets means when you, you don't agree on the language, but you know that there has to be some, some part of this text. Uh, so that was good. They were really serious about negotiating in, in mid-December, late December. And they could have wrapped up by January, but there was this, this haggling, more haggling, or let's get a better deal. And ah, you know, they could have done it then. And, and then <laughs> at the beginning of this month, March, when, when Russia uh, almost looked like it was going to um, block everything by demanding that. Um, its trade with Iran be protected uh, despite the sanctions over Ukraine. I thought, oh my God, if only, you know, if only this deal had been done earlier. But fortunately, Russia walked back from its demand and, uh, and we're back to where it looks like there's only a couple issues left and, and those issues should be able to be overcome if, if everyone really does want a deal. Mark, as I understand that there are, are there are three issues. One you alluded to, which was uh, the sequencing. If you could tell us a little more about what that means. And second, relatedly, was uh, Iran's issues with the IAEA about a previous uh, investigation into Iran's noncompliance and pr producing records and information that the IAEA had asked about previous nuclear work. And then I'll follow up with a, with a question about the third issue, which regards uh, foreign terrorist designations. Right. <laughs> These are all complicated issues. How can I simplify? Um, the sequencing, um, I, I hesitate to 
uh, say too much about the details because I, you know I don't know what the details are other than it's uh, it's clear that there will be uh, some uh, sequential um, calendar for when different elements of the uh, deal will begin and having this um, uh, timeline of, of different things happening on different dates and you know called implementation day or or, or um, uh, some other you know, uh, words will be used that um, will allow uh, Iran to satisfy its demand that there be um, uh, you know, uh, verification that that the United States has lifted its uh, its sanctions. Now, you know, such a verification is is not really what's going to happen. But there will be, I think, some initial uh, release of uh, of holds on on. Um, blocked funds, for example, and, uh, and Iran's return to um, the limits and other aspects of its commitments, you know, may be staggered. Um, so this might all happen over a period of, of three or four months. I, I don't know exactly. I, I look forward to diving into the details when the deal is actually uh, announced. But that's the sequencing issue. I think it's to deal with uh, Iran's need to have some kind of verif verification that um, that they're getting actually benefits out of the deal before they give up all their leverage. Um, this issue about IAEA um, uh, investigation of, uh, of, of the um, evidence that they had been conducting undeclared uh, nuclear activity because some, some nuclear particles had been picked up by um, previous um, uh, environmental sampling. Um, that's not specifically part of this deal. But it is um, very much um, a, a, an issue because of uh, if if Iran continued to um, block IAEA investigation, if they continued not to answer IAEA questions, um, then there would be um, uh, in the quarterly meetings of the IAEA Board of Government there would be a, um, a demand to uh, censor uh, Iran, you know, um, uh, to criticize it. And, and, and uh, actually, they, they should be uh, faced with a, a safeguards violation um, uh, judgment. And uh, that would have been totally in keeping with IEA rules, but that would have, um, that would have uh, set back negotiations because under those conditions, Iran's political leadership would find it very hard to uh, agree to a deal. So um, they, Iran negotiated with IAEA Director General uh, Rafael Grossi, and they worked out some tentative um, uh, process whereby uh, uh, Iran would address questions. And uh, if they were satisfactory, then by June, um, the IAEA would put them to rest. If they weren't satisfactory, the IEA would keep um, up its investigation. And it's a little complicated, and I'm not sure in that this um, process that was negotiated is going to actually work out to uh, anyone's satisfaction, but it was a way to um, kick the can down the road of this uh, difficult issue of the undeclared nuclear activity. Mark, one of the trickiest issues uh, is the designation of the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, as a, a, a terrorist organization, uh, Iran has asked that they be delisted. And the IRGC designation as an FTO, as it's known by the acronym, uh, was done under President Trump. So 
as a means, I think, to make it difficult to delist them in the dish as a, an, an added uh, complexity if a subsequent administration sought to re-enter uh, the JCPOA. But this is tricky given the IRGC's uh, activities in the region, including most recently uh, an attack on Erbil in Iraq. So how do you see this issue playing out? Yeah, Andrew, thanks. The way you've, you've, um, you've uh, put this issue in context is very good because the, the foreign terrorist organization designation was explicitly applied to the IRGC uh, in a political context whereby President Trump was trying to put a roadblock uh, to his successor in, um, in any effort to uh, restore the JCPOA. So this was not, I mean, yeah, there is a legitimate um, uh, legal case for calling them an FTO. Um, the lawyers um, did a proper job and and um, satisfying the requirements for it. But but gosh, uh, uh, calling um, a military uh, organization, you know, a, a part of the of the government of another country, an FTO. It's never it had never been done before. FTO designations were used, and the whole issue, the FTO was, came about to, to deal with non-state uh, terrorist groups, not governments. And so it was, um, it was improperly applied, I think, um, even though legally it may have been correct. Now, um, to Iran, it's vital uh, to get this lifted. Um, because uh, because the IRGC is uh, so important because of the political uh, uh, you know weight attached uh, to this issue, and um, it's a it's unfortunate because it's a false it's a false issue in the sense that um, under under the, the the deal that to restore the uh, JCPOA has to um, lift all sanctions which would impede implementation of the deal. That's that's the principle, and both part both parties have um, uh, voiced different variations of this principle. You lift sanctions that would otherwise impede the economic benefits to Iran, and um, and Iran makes the case. Well, it, it, IRGC is a very important economic organization. It's it's a military organization, but it also has uh, huge economic uh, interests. It's got these it, you know controls boneyards, um, uh, um, you know parastatal. Um, uh, economic uh, activity, and it, it it's 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 said to be involved in maybe twenty percent of the Iranian economy. So, um, sanctioning uh, the IRGC you know, uh, would seem would seem to uh, impede um, the full benefits of the um, JCPOA. But no, it won't, because um, uh, the IRGC is going to be sanctioned anyway. There's there's a whole raft of other sanctions which apply to the uh, IRGC. So lifting the FTO won't um, materially change um, the um, IRGC's ability to uh, interact in the, in the international um, financial arena or, or anything. Uh, so that's why I call it a false issue, but it's politically uh, such a touchy issue both in Iran and um, the United States. I think the United States is going to have to lift the designation. Um, there will be, uh, you know, cries and hollers uh, from the critics of the JCPOA. But 
I think if we remember what you just said, that this, this FTO designation was done for a political reason to try to block Biden. Well, they didn't know it would be Biden then when they put it on. And um, so Biden should take the political decision to unblock it. Mark, there is a related issue regarding US-Iran relations and the, the nuclear talks, and that's regarding uh, Americans and, and other uh, foreign nationals held in Iran. We saw that two British nationals were released this week. That could be a good sign. Uh, there is hope and expectation that uh, perhaps even the, the four Americans uh, who have been held uh, may be part of the deal or a related complementary negotiation that may be going on. And that's including um, our friend and colleague, Siamak Namazi, who's uh, the longest held uh, going back now over, over six years. So um, do you see these negotiations over uh, foreign nationals and the, the Americans held in Iran as, uh, as part of the talks? And do you expect them to be part of the package, whether directly connected or indirectly connected to what's happening in Vienna? Oh, I think they will be part of the package. They're, they're not obviously directly part of the JCPOA um, in any way, but they have to be part of the package. Um, the chief U.S. negotiator, Rob Malley, uh, said this uh, uh, in January. It's hard. He said it was hard to conceive of, of uh, U.S. going back to the deal if there were still American citizens being detained in, in Iran. And then, um, you know, the fact that, as you said, the two, um, two of the three um, British Iranian dual nationals uh, are now back in freedom uh, is a, is a tremendously uh, you know good in its own uh, right, but also very uh, good uh, as a uh, premonition of what's likely to happen in the coming days with regard to the U.S. prisoners. I fully expect that uh, they will be released in connection with um, the JCPOA being restored, and uh, it's you know it, it, the Biden administration. It needs it not well they need it on its own right because getting Americans back and our friend uh, uh, Siamak and it's just part of uh, part of um, you know American um, uh, ethos of, of getting our people back it's also very important politically for Biden if he's going to um, take a big political hit and make a make the risky um, decision to uh, lift the FTO designation for the IRGC. He needs something uh, uh, political, uh, politically beneficial in return. And I think the uh, return of, of US um, citizens uh, will be an important way to balance uh, the um, difficult decision he will make on the IRGC. Mark, do you think the, um, the region, including American partners such as Israel, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, who have their concerns about the JCPOA and the regional security environment, as they did in 2015. Uh, do you see steps being taken that might mitigate some of their concerns this time around? Yeah, I think, for example, in, in relation to the IRGC, um, if they are de-designated, um, you know, Iran will have to make a, a commitment uh, that um, the IRGC will uh, scale back its um, uh, its activity and uh, in, in you know its its uh, extra territorial uh, activity, and that um, and that if they don't or if they resume this kind of um, uh, actions, um, that uh, that the U.S. could re-trigger um, some sanctions. 
so, um, but, but apart from that, I want to just deal with the, the basic question of, is this deal really bad for um, Amer uh, America's um, regional partners? And the way I see it, the answer is absolutely not. And that's also the way that many Israeli security thinkers uh, see it. You know, they, they argued that it was uh, very good for Israel uh, when the JCPOA was uh, adopted because it removed the most serious threat to Israel. They, <laughs> Israel has many other things to worry about, uh, but this now wasn't one of them. And then when, when, when Trump withdrew and then Iran um, ramped up its nuclear program, well, then that, that issue uh, again was on uh, Israel's lap. So is, Israeli security thinkers will be um, quite happy if uh, Iran's nuclear advances are again rolled back. They might not be, those who are in, in office, you know, who are still um, serving as government officials won't be able to say so, but um, those who used to be in office, I think we will hear from them that, um, that indeed it's good for Israel. As for the, the, the GCC states, um, I think that getting restoration of the JCPOA um, opens possibility for other um, uh, deals with Iran. The uh, talks between Iran and, and the Saudis, which really aren't going anywhere, aren't necessarily going to succeed if the JCPOA is restored. But I think um, restoring the JCPOA and restoring uh, a sense of, uh, of commitments being um, honored will um, help uh, 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 talks in other areas. Mark, you've given us a clinic today on the Iran nuclear deal. Thank you so much for joining us on, on the Middle East. Quite welcome, Andrew. It was a, a pleasure, and I, I really appreciated the opportunity to ex expand on uh, you know, these issues beyond the short clips that uh, I get when I get interviewed by, uh, by the normal media. Well, we appreciate it, and we appreciate uh, your contributions for our monitor. As I mentioned at the beginning, you've got a great piece on the site this week, and I look forward to uh, being in touch on these issues as, as we have been for many years. Okay, Andrew. Good. Great. Thank you, Mark. And happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you. Same to you. <laughs> <laughs> we will return after this short break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department Correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest, Mark Fitzpatrick, and our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Rosabel Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. 
We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our L Monitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Jill Capel, whose guest this month is Nobel Peace Prize winner Maria Reza, CEO of Rappler, the digital media website. And On Israel with Ben Caspit, where Ben this week speaks with former Knesset member Ksenia Svetlova, who grew up in Russia and later made Israel her home. And of course, this podcast will be back next week too, On the Middle East where Ambrin Zaman will be here with another decision maker or thought leader from the region. Thank you all for listening and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com. Mm-hmm.